Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain podcast. My name is Max Elster. I'm an entrepreneur in the voice space and podcaster now for three years. Um, and I'm interested in more or less talking to thought leaders, experts and builders from around the globe that are in business or in tech that could definitely help other entrepreneurs and other product and tech-oriented people to help build their companies and uh, shape their future together. Today, we have a very interesting guest that is definitely well-known in the product and entrepreneur space. It's Nia Eyal, the Wall Street author of the famous book, famous book Hooked. <laughs> I'm sorry for the little mistake here. Uh, he taught at Stanford Graduate School of Business. He is an angel investor in different product-oriented startups like Product Hunt or Anchor or also Eventbrite. And he's generally a go-to person for everything that's related to product and building habit-performing products. And um, he also published a new book now, which is called Indistractable, which goes a little further and talks about how people can be more indistractable and really focus on the things that matter. And we talk together about his school of hard knocks, more or less. So the his life in that regard, how he has gone through the different challenges and stories that have more or less made his life as interesting as it is right now. We talked about his teaching at Stanford Graduate School of Business. We talk about different companies that have used behavior-oriented products in a good or in a bad way. We also talk about the ethical questions behind uh, yeah, building habit-performing products. And of course, we talk about his new book, which is all about How can you find traction in your life to be more focused, to be more to be higher performing, and how can you avoid distraction, um, which can be email and all the different channels that we know? And uh, it was an amazing chat. We had a fantastic talk, and I'm sure you would definitely enjoy it as well. Um, definitely, let us know if you're listening to it on the socials. You can find near. Uh, in potentially every channel possible under Nir Eyal. You can also find me under Max Elster and we would love to hear from you guys um, and definitely check it out. Happy to hear from you soon. Bye-bye. Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain podcast. My name is Max and we have another episode. Um, it should be now published in September, and uh, we have a very interesting guest now in the show. It's uh, Nir Eyal. I've actually um, done a little bit of research and talked to a couple of friends who actually read his book, and uh, I got a lot of questions in the inbox and on different channels, so I need to see how I can merge them and bring them on, on, on the podcast. So I have a lot of questions in mind. Uh, the, for the people who don't know Nir, he's uh, the author, Wall Street best-selling author of the book Hooked, um, How to Build habit-forming products, which is just an amazing one, which um, which helped a lot of people actually build great products. He has taught at Stanford Graduate School of Business, which is also very interesting because a lot of podcast guests have, have been there as well. Um, and he's an angel investor in different products like uh, Anchor, Eventbrite, or Product Hunt, which, of course, in the tech community that we have is definitely known. So I'm super honored to have you on board, Nia. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, Max, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, t I'm totally flashed. I think it's a, just a great opinion of, uh, just a great chance actually to talk to you about your different opinions that you have on tech, on, on products, and uh, on your new book, of course, which is coming out in September as well. So there's a lot of new stuff that we're going to cover, and I hope I can jiggle a little bit around on the different topics. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. Fire away. Happy to talk about anything you'd like. <laughs> okay. The first question I have, which maybe is a little different what, from what usual, usually people start as a first question, but it's, it's about your background a little bit. So as far as I've done my research, you have been an immigrant in the United States. Um, and now you're actually observing different companies on what they do good and how they actually build habit-performing products and how people can actually build habits. I would go a little back and see when you came to the U.S. and you actually started realizing what's happening in the United States with different entrepreneurs really willing to change the world and different people actually willing to to make uh, the, the American dream possible. What have you observed from a first childish standpoint that has been different in the States maybe than to other countries? Yeah, that's, that is a question I don't often get asked, but I, I appreciate it because I think it does, um, there is something unique to the immigrant experience in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and there is something very unique about Silicon Valley. And that is that there is a tolerance for risk that you don't see in other places that, you know, I've, I've taught my workshops and courses and my book is published now in, I don't know, 13 languages or so. So I've, I've, I've been in a lot of places and met with entrepreneurial communities in many different countries. And I think what is unique to the United States, and I think we're starting to see this change around the world, is this tolerance and maybe even an appreciation for battle scars. Mm -hmm. That if you tried and failed, it's a badge of courage. It's not, um, it's not a scarlet letter. It's not something that, you know, in another country, if you start a business and your business fails, that's it. No one's ever going to invest sure. in you again. And I think in the United States, it's quite the opposite. Like I like talking to an entrepreneur who didn't, things didn't work out and now learn from it. Like that's, that's fantastic. Now, of course, you know, once in a while you'll get a know-it-all who blames everybody but themselves. And that's not the kind of person, obviously, you know, that, that you want to invest <laughs> in. But, you know, many times you get people who first time didn't work out, second time didn't work out, but oh my God, what they learned on those two, you know, failures or base hits ends up being an incredible lesson for the third uh, enterprise that they start. So I think people don't get written off, right? Like, and that was kind of actually hard for me to understand. So I, I raised a bunch of money uh, from, from investors in Silicon Valley for my last company. And uh, I felt a lot of pressure uh, to, to give them back their money because <laughs> it was millions of dollars. And of course you want to make your investors money, but I, I also didn't appreciate the fact that like, that that's built into the model, that investors mm -hmm. losing money uh, is part of the math for how these things work out. And they want you to dream big, right? They don't, they don't want, and, and this, is, this is where there's actually a, a, a potential fault to this model in a way is that they they only want big companies, right? To, to for investors right. to return the fund and hit the kind of returns they need, they're not okay with just uh, what we call a lifestyle business, and and that's a, almost a pejorative term. But you know <laughs> they they want world changing companies, and so the 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 that's bad if what you want to do is to start a restaurant or you know a, a kind of business that has a really tough time scaling. It's great if your ambitious are to change the world because there are people here that will put that money into your company and help you change the world. 
Yeah, and it's, I think it's funny because, like, you see, of course, immigrants that, like, I love the thought, actually, because, of course, like, immigrants like you actually explore a country from a different perspective. Maybe people in Europe who have been in the, in the continent for, for hundreds of years. I mean, people, actually, I just had a discussion with a friend of mine who was just talking about, like, people that have been exploring the United States as a first time just saw a different country and realized those people that actually explored the United States must have been very brave and very mm. entrepreneurial. And do you think that... That that's something that has been like transported throughout the generations until the people that are working in businesses now and building companies, or do you think that's something where just different reasons come together? Yeah, I I think that there is something very entrepreneurial about the American dream. Um, but I think there's I think Silicon Valley is the embodiment of that. And then some, because in Silicon Valley, you have an ecosystem that supports reinvesting in mm -hmm. in these kind of companies so you know you can you, you, you can and not, not that this can't be recreated i actually have seen some pretty good examples now of 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 ecosystems like this starting elsewhere so i don't i don't think silicon valley or the united states certainly has a monopoly on this but there is something very special about the ecosystem where you you make a company you know one out of a hundred makes it big and then those people reinvest their money into new companies that try and do the same thing uh and and that's that's pretty unique to have to have the confluence of you know highly educated people uh risk takers many of them immigrants who come to silicon valley from all over the world mm -hmm. uh and uh and the capital <laughs> you need all right. three uh you know you need you need the the educated workforce you need the risk takers uh, the entrepreneurs and you need uh, the capital and to have all those three at one geographically tight area is uh, is is pretty rare that you see the confluence of those three things. Absolutely, I mean we have different other con uh, different other cities like Tel Aviv or Berlin who are trying to make it as far as possible, but of course there's still a big difference. But I think like from your from your opinion now, since you have been investing in different startups, and we, I would love to cover that as well in the later stage of the podcast. What you have mentioned, what has actually involved or what has emphasized your life was, you call it, I think, the school of hard knocks, which, which mm. I had to research because I didn't <laughs> know the term here, uh, which is more or less the university of life, which I yeah. found very special. And you added Stanford as a big name to it. And I think the combination is quite interesting. But I think maybe to dig deep here, what are, what, what are things that actually have impacted your life in regards to the university of life that you have experienced so far that you want to give forward to other people and other entrepreneurs and network? Yeah, I think it's experience. So the, I, the reason I would say I, I, I learned much more from the School of Hard Knocks than from the School of Business at Stanford is that there is no substitute to experience as a teacher, mm -hmm. that you can read something in a book. Uh, you know, I get asked all the time, should I go to business school? Should I go to business school? And um, it really depends on what your goals are. I mean, business school is there to teach management, right? They're graduate schools of business, of management. Uh, they don't necessarily teach entrepreneurship. Uh, I would back a scrappy entrepreneur that, uh, you know, scraped and clawed their way into an industry over someone who has a pedigree that says they went to Harvard or Stanford or wherever. Uh, and I went to Stanford and I taught at Stanford, but I, I think that there's no substitute for grit and hard work. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what I like to back. You know, you need to be, I think, to have an entrepreneurial ethos, you need to have a high risk tolerance. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, something that I learned along the way is that I'm not sure I have even a high enough risk tolerance. I started two companies. Uh, I sold those companies. Uh, but I, to really, to really take the risks, you need to have, you know, like you look at an Elon Musk. Right. You know, that guy has been through so many cycles of having hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to having less than Nothing. zero. And you know, to have surgeries. that kind of risk tolerance is is beyond me. I, I don't have it, I have to admit. And, and, and it was because I went through this experience before of, you know, thinking, oh man, I really want to build this company and man, I wish, and then, and then, you know, when times got tough, wishing someone would just buy the company off of me because it got too hard, I wanted out. Uh, <laughs> I think a real entrepreneur doesn't want out, right? A real entrepreneur, and I'm not sure if I'm a real entrepreneur in the way that, that an Elon Musk is, and I, it, you know, pains me to say that because I really admire people who can do this. Uh, they don't want out. They have this, you know, they, we call it the reality distortion field where mm-hmm. everything is going to come up roses. Just trust me, right? Just, just watch, follow me, and you'll see how this will work out. And I think my problem is probably that I, I think too much, that I, I look at things rationally, whereas I think real entrepreneurs need that bit of crazy. They mm-hmm. need to be able to just not, see uh, the possibility of failure, and yet, and here's where it's so paradoxical, yet react in ways that prevent those potential failures without letting it get them down, without being pessimistic about it. Uh, that's, I mean, optimism is probably the defining trait of, of successful entrepreneurs. I, I've never met an entrepreneur who's a pessimist. It doesn't exist. No, I, I can totally agree to that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that I've, I've seen in the podcast, but also from personal conversation, have the, the extreme optimism side, but also have some sort of risk mitigation side that leads them to actually make good decisions to reduce risk and therefore incre- right. increase the chance of, of potential potential success. Is that also something that you would agree or, on? Or, or they have people, they're smart enough to have really good people around them that they that, who they trust, right, who can balance them out. <laughs> That's true. Like the, the optimism needs some pessimism on the on the backside, on the backbone of it. <laughs> right. But, you know, you see you tend to see in these stories when you think about a Steve Jobs or uh, an Elon Musk or, you know, many, many of these folks, you see these cycles, you see these boom busts that they're able to withstand. Uh, it's and it's and it's. It's surviving long enough to take that big shot. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where you're propelled into this other stratosphere of a product that that really has a world changing impact is if you can survive a, lo- a, a long enough to take that big chance, you know, like Steve Jobs coming back to Apple after it was in the tank. Right. Like that 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 kind of courage is is not easy to come by. Right. And we see it the same with with Elon when he was like more or less rejected as a CEO at PayPal, I guess, uh, as far as I remember. And he came back with a big vision and actually made the company to to an exit. Right. I mean, that's something where you see some synergies between like the big guys uh, that that have actually built great businesses across the world. And I think we definitely find a synergy here that we, we see those entrepreneurs going the same way. Nevertheless, I think. There are still a lot of, since you mentioned Stanford and you, you taught there, um, there are a lot of like good entrepreneurs that actually come from Stanford and you have actually been there. You have taught people, you have taught the, 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 the create, the creative side of, of, of product building, of actually making habits possible. What have you seen? Like you have, you've seen different people, different entrepreneurial spirits. What have you seen from a teacher perspective that 
you thought, okay, there are certain people that are entrepreneurial from the start on. Is there something that they had in common where you think people should analyze themselves on what they're good at, which especially those people at Stanford had? Is there something that you analyzed or observed? Well, believe it or not, Stanford Business School is not the most entrepreneurial place. That, in fact, only about 7% of every graduating class ends up starting a business. The majority of people who go to Stanford Business School, they end up becoming management consultants, investment bankers, private equity people. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people uh, become entrepreneurs because it's really risky, <laughs> right? right? That it's, yeah. it's, uh, uh, you know, if you if you have a, a, a if you can become a VC uh, after after going to Stanford Business School and you're making a ton of money, is it a good idea to 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 make zero as an entrepreneur? It's really that's a tough call. And so sometimes you need. I think this is part of why why immigrants make such good entrepreneurs because these are the kind of people who are willing to leave everything. Right? They're willing. They they're starting from. Sometimes you need to start from scratch to be able to take the kind of risk it takes. Uh, to, to, to try and aim high that if you have another option, you know, if you have a trust fund and a really good job waiting for you, why take big risks? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. The math doesn't compute that way. So I don't know if I would say that, 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 you know, Stanford is some kind of, uh, entrepreneur factory. I think what it does have is, uh, and this is what, what I'll always be grateful to Stanford for. It does serve as a, a connection hub. Right. That there's so many people who have walked through those halls, who have connections to people at Stanford, that there is a network of folks that is much easier to access uh, once you're in that ecosystem. It doesn't mean it's impenetrable. Right. There are lots of people, lots of stories of people who did not go to Stanford. Most people who make it in Silicon Valley did not go to Stanford. Right. Um, but there is it, it is kind of a, a, a it does give you. Uh, it does help you skip a few steps if if right. you if you have access to that network. Right. I think that's something what what I've seen from a lot of people who have actually been there and studied there that they say, okay, the network is actually what makes it special. And I, I think that's also interesting from a teacher perspective that you can of course use the network in the long tail. Um, which which also leads me to to the to the next question, which is also part of the questions that a lot of the community had, which is of course uh, based on your book Hooked, which is building fantastic products. And a lot of people who have been at Stanford or have actually built companies build great products, of course. And I would love to deep dive here. What what are like certain certain things that you have seen in companies which probably didn't read your book? What did they make wrong that actually led them to not making habit forming products that actually people love and people like enjoying? Um, yeah. So the biggest mistake that I still see to this day is people not considering consumer psychology in the first place. That a lot mm-hmm. of folks think that these companies just got lucky. And we don't see that as much as we used to. I mean, I remember when I wrote Hooked, I was published five years ago, and I pretty much had to convince everyone that there is such a thing as behavioral design, right? Nobody was using this term. Uh, people thought, you know, Zuckerberg and Dorsey and uh, Musk, they just got lucky, right? Nah, they just, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, had to, I had to kind of advocate for the fact that, you know what, these people understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Uh, you know, everybody knows that Mark Zuckerberg had a, a computer science major before he dropped out of Harvard. They don't often know that he also had uh, a major in psychology. Right. That um, uh, Kevin Systrom was a co- symbolic systems major at Stanford. And symbolic systems is this integration of computer science and psychology. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Reed Hoffman. I mean, a, a lot of these folks, they understand consumer psychology at a, at a deep level. And so it's not chance. It's not coincidence. They have designed products to get you hooked. Uh, and so it's important to, to realize that that's probably the biggest mistake in the, the, is that, hey, if we just build the best product, we'll win. <laughs> and that is no longer true. Right. That, right. That, that probably was true for a while when there was a lot of low hanging fruit. Right. When technology, uh, when software could automate a lot of jobs, could make, uh, you know, um, uh, CMS systems and ERP systems that, uh, you know, took stuff that used to be done offline and bring it online for the first time. There was a lot of low hanging fruit and usability didn't matter. Right. right. As long as right. it did the calculations, uh, then great. That's all it needed to do. <laughs> but today, you know, for a, a SaaS business to succeed, usability is incredibly important because the fact is if people don't find your software to be something that they can use day in and day out, they quit, they churn. And then, you know, all that effort you put into acquiring that user is, you know, goes up in smoke and evaporates. So every company today that's building a product that requires repeat engagement, it behooves them to figure out how to build habits. Uh, It's such a competitive advantage. It's such a a benefit to your bottom line to not have to constantly spend money on getting people to come back. I mean, imagine what would happen if people used your product because they wanted to, not because they felt like they had to. That's the kind of products that we've seen really succeed, both in in consumer facing as well as enterprise products. It's these products that bring people back on their own. That's the kind of products that we've seen uh, succeed over the past decade. And would you there rather recommend going into like specific research and talk to universities on how they would potentially see your products being used based on like psychological backgrounds or would you rather like the lean startup um, from Eric Reed says talk to users immediately and understand how they actually think about the product what would you recommend from a from a from an EAL standpoint <laughs> yeah so the, where the hook model fits in so the hook model fits into Eric Reese's uh, lean startup methodology and Steve Blank worked a lot on this as well mm-hmm. uh, this idea of build measure learn you, you still have to do that there is no shortcut to build measuring and learning you still have to do that those three steps the idea though is that you know the most expensive part of build measure learn where all the blood sweat tears and money all go mm-hmm. is the building phase Right, measuring and learning—that's easy. That's fun. Right. It's building that's so expensive. And so instead of building what the loudest customer thinks we should build, or building what the investors say we should build, or building what the highest-paid person's opinion is—the hippo, right? The highest-paid person's opinion. <laughs> instead of building based on what these these people, they even actually think about it, even building what our customers say. There's a big difference between articulatable needs, people that the things that people will say they need versus what they actually will do, what they actually need. These mm-hmm. latent needs they're not able to articulate, right? Nobody woke up at two in the morning in 2005 before Facebook existed and said, oh my God, I wish I could update my status. They didn't know <laughs> that such a product could even exist. But today, if right. you took away Facebook, if Facebook just shut down, people would have conniption fits, right? It'd be a huge problem for people. (laughs) So, you know, when it comes to, you you still have to use build, measure, learn methodologies, but where the hook model fits in is helping you decide what to build. And so it's a diagnostic tool to help you understand where is your product efficient. If you have to build a product that brings people back on their own, out of habit, this tool allows you to figure out, okay, where is the user experience deficient? Is the internal trigger missing? Is the action too difficult? Is the variable reward present? Is there an investment that makes the product better with use? And by mm-hmm. running it through this model, 
you can decide what to build, not based on, you know, somebody's opinion, but based on some, you know, decade old research into how people really behave. Amazing. Love that approach of really actually under, of really combining science research and the direct customer feedback, but more from a, from an objective standpoint, not the subjective standpoint where people just tell you what to do next as a feature, but rather right. see it from like a, a bird's eye and see what, where the, where the users actually want to go to. I think that's something where a lot of people struggle with what I can observe as well. Um, still like maybe to to go deeper here i think that's what's also a question that was asked by the community we are now living in an age and i think that's also the the perfect switch now to come to talk a little bit about your next book indistractable where there are a lot of products which have built extremely habit performing usage where people just spend hours and even days on one social network and now of course people come up with okay why are those social networks actually active and people spend a lot of time uh, on their phones instead of with their family from an ethical standpoint, what do you think, what is, why are there, like, do you really think that those product makers actually have in mind that people spend less time with their family or what, what do you believe from an ethical standpoint, where, where does it all go to in the future or where, where should product managers also, what should they think about when they think about building products? Yeah, so I've, I've uh, advocated for what I call the regret test and the regret test says that, uh, that manipulation is not necessarily wrong. What's wrong, what's unethical is coercion, right? Manipulation, remember, has two types. Persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Persuasion is manipulation, mm -hmm. right? If I um, persuade you to exercise more, if I persuade you to uh, save money, if I persuade you to do something that you yourself want to do, that is manipulation. All design is manipulation, but that doesn't mean that it's unethical. Coercion is unethical. Getting people to do something they don't want to do, either today or in the future, that's unethical. So we would never want to design an experience that is coercive. Why? Not only is it ethically a bad thing to do, it's bad business. Mm -hmm. People are not puppets on a string, okay? I'm telling you as an industry insider, I've worked with <laughs> countless companies to build the kind of products that are habit-forming. Habits are not addictions. Okay. Anybody who's built product knows that these techniques work, but they're not that good, right? This isn't, you know, putting people's brains on uh, strings like a puppet. You can't make people dance around and do things that they don't want to do <laughs> unless they have an addiction. And that's a special category of people that we need to help. People who are actually pathologically addicted. This is single digit percentages of the population okay. or their children. Right. So children are a protected class of people that deserve special protection. But everybody else, 95 to 99 percent of the population, the adult population, it's our responsibility. Uh, the companies aren't going to do it for us. The government's not going to do it for us. We have to take matters into our own hand and, and make sure that we can get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. And let me tell you, you know, I've talked to many of these companies. I've talked with Facebook. I've talked with Instagram. I've talked with Google. I've talked to Reddit. I've talked to Snapchat. They understand this. We've known for a long time that if people overuse a product, okay, short of people with an actual pathological addiction, which is a very small percentage of the population, there's special things we need to do to help those people. But for people who are not pathologically addicted, here's what happens. They burn out. They burn out right. <laughs> and no right. business wants that. I just heard uh, two days ago that in the UK, Facebook usage is down something like 30%. Yeah, in Germany, it's the same. We have an insane yeah. De decrease. Yeah. 
So this talk about, you know, these companies are manipulating us and they're making us addicted and hijacking our brains. Bullshit is not true. And we are going to laugh about the conversation we're having today in another 10 years because it'll be something else. It always has been. We've all oh, every generation has some technology before, you know, Facebook, it was the iPhone was melting our brain. And before that, it was television was melting our brain and before that radio and before all of these things are supposedly hijacking our brain and driving people crazy. And it's never true. It's never the technology that causes distraction. This is what indistractable is all about. It's Absolutely. about yeah. this idea that we have to stop blaming the proximal cause. And I think this is a problem with society in general uh, these days. I don't know if it's always been like this, but you know, it seems to me that these days people love low fidelity thinking. Mm -hmm. We only like to see the big picture and we don't want to get up close and see what's really happening. It's kind of like one of those pointillism paintings. You know, like Chuck mm -hmm. Close used to draw these huge paintings uh, with just his thumbprint. And I've you would step idea. back and be like, oh, that's a photograph. But then when you get close, you realize, oh, actually, it's just his thumbprint, right? <laughs> so we, we only look at the big picture without understanding the details about what's really going on. And this is what's happening today with this debate around and technology and this bullshit about people getting their brains hijacked, that if you look closer at this problem, this is an age-old problem. People have always been getting distracted, but that doesn't mean that we can't do something about it. Because as good as these algorithms are, as persuasive as this technology is, and I'm telling you as an industry insider, mm -hmm. the Achilles heel is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is planning ahead, is knowing what to do to prevent distraction. And that's why I wrote this book. Because look, if we wait for these companies to change their ways, if we it's wait for the government to, to fix this problem, you know, if you hold your breath, you're gonna suffocate. It, right. it's, it's not going to happen in time for, to save us. The good news is there's a lot we can do on our own, and it's actually not even that hard to do. Which is a vicious cycle, right? I mean, if people don't really care about themselves first, they don't know how to use technology, and that's going to lead up to uh, actually technologies being used less because people just, as you say, right, they run out of energy in the long tail. Um, and I think, I think I'm not sure if that was actually mentioned in your book. I think so. Um, in the in the old days, people just read books all day, and they were addicted to books. And now they're addicted to phones, of course, because of technology. And nothing has really changed. People just use different platforms or different interfaces to use addiction as something that they want to flee away from or whatever. So it's right. it's something it's something way deeper that probably people think about. And I think that's a great great thing now about your book because that enhances on what people are actually on the one hand capable about of actually scheduling things, really making. Um, really making things different than what they've used to do and just like setting up goals and actions that people want to do and then actually being successful and, and happy and joyful in, in, in life. And um, I would actually like to cover one topic because you already talked a little bit on what the book is about. Maybe can you deep dive a little bit on the traction and distraction part because that's what I've absolutely loved about the book, understanding where the psychology behind it actually comes from. Can you maybe dig a little bit on, on what that, that's about? <laughs> sure, sure. So. You know, the, I want to be careful about how we use this word addiction. It gets tossed around a lot, but addiction is, is a very special thing. Addiction is a pathology. This is when, despite our efforts, we can't stop doing a, a certain behavior. And this is not something that, that uh, everyone has. That, that, that's not true. It's a very small percentage of the population, and it's a percentage of the population that nearly 100% of the time has something else going on, some kind of other comorbidity. 
uh, obsessive compulsive disorder or something, some traumatic event in their life that they're looking to escape from, that's addiction. So let's put that aside because we're, we're not talking about the small percentage of people who actually do have a, a pathological problem. We're talking about, about the rest of us, right? People who are, are perfectly healthy and yet we find ourselves overusing. But when we ask people, you know, have you tried to moderate the use of these products? Eh. Not really, <laughs> right? Well, so, yeah. so let's start with, with okay, let's, let's make a little effort here, right? Let's ask ourselves, what could we be capable of if we did what we said we're going to do? You know, the problem with a lot of advice out there in the personal development industry is that it, we know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. We know that if you want to be healthy, if you want to be fit, you have to eat right and exercise. We know right. this. Who doesn't know that? We know that uh, if you want to have closer relationships, you have to be fully present with people. We know that if you want to be really good at your job, you have to do the difficult work. We know this stuff. We don't need to buy a book to tell us that. Mm -hmm. What we don't know how to do is how to stop getting distracted. Why is it that despite the fact that we know what to do, we don't do it? And this is an ancient problem. Socrates and Plato talked about the nature of akrasia, this tendency to do things against our better interests. 2,500 years ago. This has always been part of the human condition. So mm -hmm. in, in order to understand distraction, we need, we need to understand the opposite of distraction. Distraction is defined as doing something that pulls you away from what you want, something that you are doing without intent, right? Something mm -hmm. that takes you off track. The opposite of distraction is traction. Traction is anything you do that moves you towards what you want, right? Moves you, something that you do, you do with intent. So we have right. traction and we have distraction. And so this is part, these are, these are two steps out of four for becoming indistractable, is, is finding ways to make time for traction, for actually putting it on your schedule to do the things that you say you're going to do. Uh, it sounds simple, there's a, there's a few rules around it, and blocking <laughs> out distraction with what's called a pre-commitment. So those are two of the four techniques. Can you maybe like give one little hint because I think like reading your book actually gives very detailed insights on what what those actually mean um, those like little action items and to dos that people can do directly. Can you maybe have do you have like one one little tip that people can can already start using to see how that's going to have an effect that maybe reduces uh, distraction time in order to have more traction? Yeah. So uh, let me maybe be helpful to kind of give you the four steps because it's super important that we do these things in order. Because if yeah. you jump to step four before you've done step one, two, and three, it not only will not work, it can actually backfire. It can make things worse for you. So mm -hmm. let's start with step one. So we talked about this. Think about a, a horizontal line. So think about a, a plus mark in your mind, okay? So the plus symbol, like the, the cross, right? On one, you've got on the horizontal line, you've got an arrow pointing to the right that's pointing towards traction, things that mm -hmm. you want to do with intent. To the left is distraction, okay? Traction, distraction, that's the horizontal line. Now you've got the vertical line that bisects the horizontal line, and here these arrows aren't pointing up and down, they're pointing into the middle of the plus mark. These represent our triggers, things that prompt us to either go to the right, traction, or to the left, distraction, okay? There are two types of triggers, internal triggers and external triggers. External triggers are these things in our environment that prompt us to either traction or distraction, you know, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that prompt us to either do something we plan to do or something we didn't plan to do, traction or distraction. Now, the most common source of distraction are these 
internal triggers. Internal triggers are these things that prompt us to traction or distraction, mm -hmm. but where the trigger comes from within us. One of the most important lessons of this book is that most distraction starts from within. Mm -hmm. It starts from an uncomfortable emotional state. If we're really honest with ourselves, the icky sticky truth that we don't like to admit is that we use these distractions to escape something we don't want to feel. Right. And so we have to start there. If we don't understand the internal triggers that we are looking to escape from, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, fear, if we don't deal with those sensations, we will always get distracted by something. So that's the first place to start is to master the internal triggers. And I give you various techniques for how to do that, how to cope with these uncomfortable sensations, deal with them in a healthy manner, or fix the source of that discomfort. So my, my favorite part of the book, the part that was most revealing to me, is how important it is to recognize the sources of distraction, the source of these uncomfortable emotional states at work. It turns out that the environments that are most distracted, the workplace cultures that are the most distracted, are not the ones that have the most technology. I profile Slack, right? Slack is this company that makes this right. group chat app that people think is so distracting. But guess what? If that was true, if, if it's the technology that makes us distracted, well, then people who work at Slack should be the most distracted people on earth. And they're not. <laughs> and they're not, sure. right? They, yeah. Because turns out distraction is a sign of cultural dysfunction. That if you are at a company where people are constantly pinging and dinging each other, where they can't get anything done, where they take home work and work till 10 p.m. every night, you know, we're catching up on, on their workload, you have a messed up company culture. And if we don't deal with that company culture, and I tell you how to deal with it, if we don't deal with that company culture, you will always have more and more and more distractions. It's not the technology doing it to us, it's these sick company cultures that we need to fix. And so I talk about Boston Consulting Group, how they fixed their sick company culture, about Slack, how they make sure they have a company culture that doesn't perpetuate distraction. But that has to be the first step is mastering these internal triggers. And so a lot of the book, so the most important thing I want to leave people with, whether they buy the book or not, is the strategy. I want people to see the plus mark in their mind with the horizontal traction, distraction, the vertical internal trigger, external trigger. That's the most important part because when you understand the strategy, you can come up with the tactics yourself. I give people a lot of tactics in the book, but those tactics should be customized for each and every person who reads the book. What is most important is to understand the strategy, right? Tactics are what you do, strategy is why you do it. And the strategy is actually more important than the tactics. Uh, because once you understand that, you, you can build your own jackknife, right? You can figure out your own solutions to this problem. But without the strategy, you're just, you know, grasping at straws. You, you're not, you don't really know what you're doing. You're just kind of trying whatever, uh, whatever you can get your hands on. Yeah, and I, can, I love that because I can totally agree on that since I've read your book. I think a lot of people just buy books where there's a lot of tactics and there's a lot of tactics jiggle where people just start using different tools and different methods to make life easier or better. But a lot of times they don't understand why they actually use those tools or methods right, to make right. life and we, better. And we really start with first principles. I'm a big fan of first principles as espoused by Richard Feynman. You know, this is like what, what Elon Musk talks about a lot. Really right. understanding not only just why do we get distracted, why do we do anything? Right? What's right. the seat of human motivation? If you don't understand what really drives motivation, and by the way, let me give you a hint, it's not mm -hmm. pain and pleasure. Most people think that it's about carrots and sticks. That's the source of motivation. 
No, right. it's not. Uh, and if we don't understand why it's not, then we will never get our behaviors under control and do what it is we really want to do. Where does motivation come from in your eyes? Okay, so I'll, I'll give you the, I wanted to save that for the book, but I'll, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> we the, can also the, postpone that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. So the answer is that motivation is not about uh, pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. Motivation is all about the avoidance of discomfort, period. Mm -hmm. Everything we do is about avoiding discomfort. So that means that time management is pain management. That if you want to master your behaviors, if you want to make sure that you do what you say you're going to do, if you want to live with personal integrity and accomplish your goals without constantly being distracted by the latest shiny thing that takes you off track, mm -hmm. you have to understand this principle that time management is pain management. And it's only when we start controlling the source of that discomfort that we can do what we say we're going to do. Love it. I mean, and of course, I give you lots of ways to do that, right? I, we don't have time to cover all these tactics, but there are literally dozens upon dozens of techniques for how to do yeah. that. And, and by the way, none of it is mindfulness and meditation. <laughs> I talk about in the book about how I will not be recommending mindfulness and meditation. Not that it doesn't work, right? For many people, mindfulness and meditation is great. It's terrific, mm -hmm. but it's not the only answer. I wanted more. I tried meditation for a whole year. Great. If it works for you, keep doing it. Didn't particularly do it for me. I wanted more. I wanted different techniques. And so that's that's what's in the book. Right, right. Absolutely amazing. Um, I actually just hear the sirens now from the police now, which actually should be you now in New York. So I think that's a good a good start to finish it up with some rapid fire questions since we have talked so much about your book now and people definitely understand what it's about. And I think that was definitely something that I wanted to share as well since I've had the pleasure of reading it. And I can definitely recommend it all hearts. Um, and uh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Short, rapid fire questions. Um, what is one book that you want to share that's not your own book that you have gifted most or loved reading? Uh, so I, I have a lot of, of favorite books, um, but... I see that behind you. Yeah, yeah, you can see here in the in the video how many books I have here. So there's, oh man, there's so many. It would really depend on what kind of person. Um, uh, you know, so I love, I read very early in life. I read uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. That was a book that I really enjoyed. Um, I love Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel is a good one. Influence, Cialdini, The War of Art, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, uh, Nudge, um, uh, Lean Startup we talked about earlier. I really like this book I read recently um, called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. That's if, you, if you're interested about addiction and why addiction is not habit, why these things are different, it's, and why my favorite line from that book is that he says, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Mm -hmm. If you want to know about addiction, that's the first place you should start. Uh, it, it dispels a lot of myths that we have. Um, in the fiction category, I think one of my favorite books is Moby Dick. I think that's mm -hmm. probably one of my cool. favorite books ever. <laughs> uh, oh, one of the books that most inspired me to, to become a writer was Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham. Love, I mean, oh, yeah. to become an essayist. He's, the, I think, one of the, the finest essayists, essayists around. I love that book. Yes. So I go on and on here. How, how much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine. I need to write it down later on to see like how we can put it on to show notes. So I think Paul Graham, of course, is an absolute uh, genius in regards to essays. So I think I can also recommend him. So thanks for, for sharing those different books that you have mentioned. I need to need to cover it later. <laughs> um, what's one routine that you do that you helps you keep being motivated and actionable? Uh, the, the most beneficial routine that I have is uh, looking at my calendar every week. 
So I use this technique, time boxing, which I, which as you know, I recommend in the book, right. uh, which is about making a template for the week ahead. And it takes a little bit of work up front. I actually uh, coded up this, this tool that I'll give you the link to in the show notes, um, where you can basically create this template for your week so that you know the difference at all times between traction and distraction. So it's super important mm -hmm. to define in advance how you want to spend your time. And it doesn't matter, by the way, I don't care how you spend your time as long as it's consistent with your values, go for it, right? So I'm not one of these people who say, okay, uh, video games bad, watching football good. I think that's, that's silly. It's how you define how you want to spend your time. So this routine that I have of looking over my schedule for the next week ahead with this time box schedule where literally there is no white space. Every minute of time is accounted for. It took me 30 minutes to do the first time. Now, every time I review it, it's maybe 10 minutes to review it in the week ahead. Uh, that is a life-changing uh, practice and routine that I recommend everybody do. And I'll give you a link to make it super easy for, for folks to do that. Please, that would be great. I can also um, put, yeah, as, 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 as you said, right, put it in the show notes. I'm actually also using it since I've read your book, which is absolutely fantastic in regards to time management. Um, okay, for the last final question, who would uh, a person be that you would love to have as a guest in the podcast here? That would also be quite interesting to hear. Oh, that's a good one. So I, I, uh, I read Rory Sutherland's new book. Uh, he has a mm -hmm. book called Alchemy. And I know Rory, he's, he's great. Uh, he's the, the chairperson of, uh, of Ogilvy, uh, an ad agency in London. And uh, if you, have you had him on the show? No, I haven't. He is just, he's just fun as hell to listen to. I mean, he is like so quick-witted, so funny, so entertaining. If you haven't seen his, his talk, type in Rory Sutherland. His book, I really loved his book, Alchemy. It was a terrific read. So uh, I've heard him speak many times, and it's never enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. I will, I will try to get in touch and see what's possible. <laughs> fantastic. Nir, thanks, thanks again for 40 minutes of, of, fantastic, of fantastic talk, really understanding what you're about, what your psychology is really about, and how you actually want to inspire people with your new book. And uh, I will definitely put it in the show notes. Thanks again for your time. My pleasure, Max. Thanks so much for the interview. I enjoyed it. Likewise. Thanks. Thank you.